0: This is episode twenty-one of the Immunology Podcast, Trained Immunity with Dr. Mihai Netia. Hey, everyone! This is Dr. Jason Goldsmith and Dr. Brenda Roud. Welcome back to the Immunology Podcast. We have conversations with immunologists. The Immunology Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. Today, we have Dr. Mihai Netia from Radboud University Nijmegen on the podcast to talk about his research on the memory traits of innate immunity. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in Immunology News coming up, but first...
1: Stem Cell Technologies would like to introduce you to Human Immunology News. It covers everything from immunotherapy, autoimmunity, and adapted and innate immunity. Human Immunology News keeps readers current with the latest news, research, policy events, and jobs relevant to the immunology community. Subscribe for free at www.humanimmunologynews.com.
0: All right, Brenda. So you're not calling us from the Netherlands. You're out partying somewhere. Where are you at?
1: Yeah, I'm way down south in my hometown in Argentina. So that's also maybe the connection is not great. I don't have all my gear.
0: You sound a little bit robotic today. So we'll we'll apologize to the audience. But okay, Brenda robot is fine. It can be Brenda 2.0. So are you still on holiday then? Does this mean you have like an extended, super awesome holiday?
1: Well, I just started. This is my first. This is Wednesday. As I've been having three days of holiday so far, so okay. it's nice.
0: Did you work during Christmas?
1: Uh, up to Christmas, I did. Then I took a week off and I went to Italy. Okay, yes, and sometimes I take holidays. I'm oh, sorry oh, about so, that. So,
0: so, you, so you had a holiday in Italy. And then a holiday in, in Argentina, but you're trying to say your only holiday was that in is... Argentina because Italy is not far enough away from you for it to count as holiday.
1: Yeah, that's a European way of life. You take holidays and enjoy yourself.
0: I got back from Hawaii recently, so I did get to do that.
1: It was pretty nice. How was it over there? It
0: was good. It was quite the flight. It took 21 hours. Layovers, you know, two kids. Thank God for tablets. <laughs>
1: I'm glad you, you got to enjoy some sun sun. I think we should move on to the reason we're talking, which is science, exciting science of 2022. So Omicron. Omicron, Omicron. I don't Omicron. want to talk about Omicron. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's everywhere. I just cannot take this I, anymore. Described
0: I... it as the Oprah Winfrey of uh, viruses where you get Omicron and you get Omicron and you get Omicron and you get yeah. Omicron.
1: everyone's, everyone's get getting Omicron. it. It's wildfire. i everywhere
0: i'm still waiting i'm sure it'll happen
1: i got a couple of close calls uh, i was very concerned i was not going to be able to, to to you know get into a plane because of my uh failed pcr test or something
0: quarantine somewhere oh, Fun time. so
1: exhausting. i don't want to i i do not have an omicron i already exhausted my omicrons on the last episode so this time i have something else but you do some have something Omicron-related, don't you?
0: Oh, I have a general... No, well, so, you know, this is a paper that's out. We'll just jump right in. So this paper's out, oh, which yes. means it's about... Oh, it doesn't even have the Delta variant in it because it takes forever to publish, folks. You know, so it was received on April 21st, 2021, revised on April 16th, 2021, and accepted on the 4th of January, 2022. That's insane. Yes. So the paper is mRNA-1273, a.k.a. Moderna, vaccine-induced antibodies maintain FC effector functions across SARS-CoV-2 variants of concern, which are no longer the variants of concern. <laughs> First author is Paulina Kaplonik, Last author is Gallit Alter. It is an immunity. This is still a preprint. It's not even technical. It's printed. It's not a preprint.
1: But what's the variant of concern back then? Alpha. Alpha.
0: <laughs> omicron shares the same some of the same mutations as alpha and the spike protein folks as the same mutation okay. that caused the s gene drop on some of the testing that we do. so it's relevant right. because it's not like these mutations are all de novo in every variant all the variants are compilations of different mutations that make it a distinct enough entity that it keeps propagating and we see some of the same mutations pop up over and over again so this looks at spike protein mutations Long and short, what they go into, and I'm going to keep this quick, is that if you look at antibodies that are generated by vaccines or infection, they have several functions. One's neutralizing, right? It binds to the spike protein in such a way as that it prevents the virus from binding to a cell and entering. That's neutralizing antibodies. That's neutralizing immunity. That's what a lot of people measure. But they said, wait, antibodies do a lot of other stuff. They have a lot of FC component, right? Functions complement-mediated, phagocytosis, targeting cells for death in other ways. There's a lot of other functions that they do, right? And so this paper compares natural gained immunity versus vaccination, looking at isotype and subclass binding in terms of neutralizing antibodies, in terms of FC receptor binding, the ability of the FC receptor to bind, It, right, so Ig low-affinity IGFC receptors binding. The ability of receptor binding domain. So that's the part that binds into the the cell, right? So that's really neutralizing antibody, but in kind of like a fragmented form. And then FC of function, FC effector functions So let's see here. Let me get the whole list because they did a whole bunch of things. Complement deposition being the main one that they looked at. And antibody dependent phagocytosis. Yes, to both of them. So they look at all this and basically find that yes, Moderna's vaccine is compromised in neutralizing antibodies of some of the variants, although not nearly as much as natural immunity. So natural immunity is the worst. But the ability of all these other antibody functions to work is largely preserved after Moderna vaccination, whereas natural immunity, not so much. And how do they do this? They take plasma from people like I forget like 10 weeks after their vaccination dose, so pretty pretty um you know, not not that soon, but not but in their peak. So pretty pretty good strong antibodies and then compare to people post infection. So, and then they compare and then do all these studies. It's a really short paper and it gets to the point. And there we go. So, the antib- the vaccines have other antibody functions that work just fine.
1: Okay, I guess that's a relief. That's a yeah. good thing.
0: Everyone's measuring neutral analyzing antibodies, but forget antibodies have other functions.
1: Yeah, that's actually, it's always difficult, right, to to, to measure all the, all the layers of, of function of the immune system with something that's simple, you know, replicable and applicable at a large scale. So it's nice to see that they're looking at different uh, functionalities of antibodies.
0: Oh, good paper, shortened to the point. I'm surprised it took so long to come out.
1: Yeah, I wonder why, why what kind of obscure uh, issue happened there. But uh, I, th- I guess that um, I can continue with, with my first paper today. I don't have a COVID paper. But I do have a vaccination related paper, and I, I want to start with that one because it is in some way a photo up from one of the papers I discussed last time or about the idea of of aerosol vaccination of uh, through the airway. Um, okay. And I was very excited about this paper because it comes from the same group from McMaster University in uh, Canada that is developing a uh, um, nasal vaccine for for COVID, which has uh, recently started a phase one trial uh, in December. And they actually published already the results from a phase 1B trial with a vaccine that is against tuberculosis. And I thought that was very interesting, because um, you know, maybe us living in developed countries may forget that tuberculosis is still quite a quite a widely spread disease. Pulmonary tuberculosis in adults is, is quite can be a huge burden in certain parts of the world. And I didn't know this, but according to the WHO, there's about 1.4 million deaths a year that are related to pulmonary tuberculosis. And I thought that was I was not aware that the numbers were still so high. Um, and also, so we know that uh, we get vaccinated uh, when we're very young with VCG, uh, and that protects us against this, this childhood tuberculosis, uh, you will think, um, but does not really protect us from, uh, a pulmonary tuberculosis in adults. And so there's a huge interest in trying to develop a vaccine that can give us long lasting protection against this part as well. And I guess it, as the same with, with COVID, it makes sense to make a, a vaccine that is inhaled. And so these people have, uh, this was, This paper was published in JCI. Um, the first author is Mangala Kumari Jayanathan from the labs of Cao Ching and Fiona Smile from McMaster University, uh, which is in Ontario. And uh, it's titled aerosol delivery, but not intramuscular injection of adenovirus adenovirus vector tuberculosis vaccine induces respiratory mucosal immunity immunity in humans. So I think I'm already giving up a lot uh, away from um, this uh, from the content of this paper. They have this vaccine that has a uh, antigen 85A uh, within a serotype 5 adenoviral vector, and they test uh, humans a regimen in which they compare either I, what they consider a high or low dose which is actually quite low when you compare it to what they give in the intramuscular injection which they also compare in this in this uh, study and they look specifically into mucosal uh, cells in, in the in the in the in the lungs so they do um, uh, lavages and they uh, obtain both uh, from this patients and that's how they really look into T-cells are, that are in, uh, in the mucosa of this patient. And they uh, have in total 31 participants. So it's not a huge study, but it's, it is supposed to be a phase one. They show that they can successfully deliver uh, a sufficient dose of this vaccine, that the patients can uh, really tolerate it very well. And uh, when they look into, so they look a little bit closer into the, the cells in the airways and also the cells in the blood of these patients. And they, sh- they can define that uh, after the, the vaccination for patients that were, uh, were had uh, aerosol vaccination, they see an increase in uh, s- immune cells in the airways, uh, which is not the case for intramuscular vaccination. They see that uh, a really robust increase in CD4 T cells are specific against this 85 uh, 8 antigen, and uh, that are many of them are polyfunctional. They express interferon gamma, TNF-alpha, IL-2, uh, and they're really the dominant T cell that gets elicited in this patient. They also see a smaller but consistent increase in CD8 T cells, which is interesting because they also see a small increase with intramuscular vaccination of CD8 T cells, but not for CD4s. And um, then uh, they also, they show that these cells have all, they have the markers of uh, tissue resident memory cells expressed in CD69, CD103, and uh, that um, the vaccination is very specific against the antigen that they are uh, targeting because uh, although these patients had already, so these patients have a pre-existing immunity against, uh, because of BCG vaccination in their childhood. So these patients have, can respond to a cocktail of a uh, microbacterial antigens uh, even prior to vaccination. And all the other responses to other vac, uh, microbacterial antigens beca- stay stay the same and only against these 85, uh, 85A um, antigen is that they see increased uh, responses. Um, and so I thought it was really interesting because they show that there is a very specific increase in the mucosal response, and that, um, and they also see an increase in uh, T cells in the blood. So it can also use uh, vaccination. Um, and uh, and they always see that the dominant T cell that it gets uh, uh, that gets activated are CD4 T cells that are dominating the immune response. Uh, what also they show is that although all of these all of the patients had pre-existing antibodies. Against the vector, the adenoviral, the human adenoviral five, uh, they they actually don't have such high. Uh, they measure IgG titers uh, in IgG uh, against um, this 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 uh, virus in both the the circulation and the valve. And what is interesting is that they, they see they they have indeed neutralizing antibodies in 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 the in the in the blood, but the in the valve titers are much lower. That's, I think that's really good because I think this type of vaccination needs to be the future for um, in diseases that are acquired through the airways. And I really am really looking forward to the results from their COVID vaccine uh, study that started in December. And I'm, so I'm really looking forward to see what the future brings.
0: All right. We're going to go on the next one. This one is called Behavioral Immune Landscapes of Inflammation by... First author is Jorginia Pranichus, and last author is Andreas Hidalgo. It's in Nature. It came out the 5th of January. It It is an interesting paper that in some ways is really what you would assume and is obvious, but no one's ever done it before, which is why it's cool. So... You have different immune cells you can sort by flow. You can then sort these cells into subphenotypes based on RNA-Seq and single cell RNA-Seq data. And so you can try to figure out, well, this cells we expect to do this, and these cells we expect to do that. Well, what they did is they used intravital microscopy to create morphogenic patterns of cells. So instead of doing like a single cell RNA-Seq, they said these cells, In these situations behave this way they're this shape this size they move in this manner they're this directional or non-directional you know they're asymmetrical in this ways in their shape they're blobby they're gooey they're you know little podocytes this they they use all the different ways that you can use mathematical framing to describe these cells and put it in n-dimensional space and then map out the differences between these cells so and then they used um inflamed skin and trachea as other mechanisms as well through like an, ablate, an ischemia model to then look at you know patho- pathologic perturbations and then what they did is they did behavior screening in 24 different mouse mutants that were related to a specific pathway which I'll get to in a second so at a high level, they, they were trying to say, okay, let's pick one pathology. So pathologic neutrophil activation, over activation of neutrophils. Um, so they looked at something downstream of a receptor called PSGL1. And so they said, okay, this is something we know. We looked at this one and noticed there were pattern changes. So then they scored for diff- 24 different mutants that were downstream of this signaling pathway that weren't like a priori already known to work. Right? they were trying to figure out if they knocked out one of 24 different mice. And they did the same experiment in 24 different mice. Not knockdown, knockouts. W- did they see a shift in the pathology in-, in this morphogenic trait that said, Oh, this is why this gene here is a precursor effect for what you would expect to have downstream. So they looked at intravascular neutrophils, intravital microscopy, and what they did is they looked for behavioral reprogramming. And so they found this gene FGR, which is a circinus not associated with altered inflammation generally. And its deficiency does not compromise neutrophil recruitment to sites of inflammation. But they did intravital microscopy and found big behavior shifts in one of the populations of cells that they defined as a bad actor. And then they looked at a therapeutic targeting of it um, by looking at neutrophils that cause early vascular activation damage. Do so you lose their models? And then did pre-inhibition of this pathway ahead of time prior to injury. And also did the knockout. And so what they are getting at here is if you did single-cell RNA-C, you wouldn't have necessarily, and you, if you, you wouldn't, you know, regular population wouldn't know. So you'd have to screen a whole bunch of mutants. But then if you, you would, how would you, you would have to screen all these mutants. Then do the final assay and say ischemia in the mice for all of them, right? And do all the time points and have a big enough group to see that it had an effect on the pathology. So think about it. They did 24 mutants, but they didn't do 24 mutants with 10 mice per group doing ischemia. They did 24 mutants and took a couple of mice each and did the intravital imaging to figure out which of these had something funky in its behavior of one of these patterns, because they identified different patterns, saying, oh, this pathogenic pattern is no longer there. It's gone. It shifted to a non-pathogenic pattern. And then they go, now we're going to do the 10 mouse study on that one. And then they found a target. So. It's a really interesting proof of concept. I don't know if it's quite ready for like worldwide showtime because they had to take 24 mice and do intravital microscopy on it and do very complicated mathematical modeling to to, to essentially isotype these different um, mice. It's a heat map with 73 morphokinetic parameters that are all defined. And then they put those into three behavioral patterns. So. It's a little user hostile, but you could see that if they could automate this in a way, or have predefined programming for this, you could make this a less specialized process, and it could be very useful. Because it's really, instead of going, oh, well, guess what? If you know, structure dictates function, or you know, genetic structure or knockout or whatever you're expressing dictates what cell you are. Duh. What if we look at the functional morphology? you isotype those, then monkey with stuff and see what goes wrong at that level and then go to the larger system model of pathology. So that was a really interesting approach. It was a ton of work to do this, like incomprehensible amount. Uh, and kudos to them for that. And it's a really unique setup. I mean, they they advertise in the abstract more than 100,000 reconstruction of cell shapes and tracks over time were required for this data set.
1: No, I did have a sneak peek at the, the paper and it's just, it's it's super cool. I also really like like the differences between the traces and a bit of these three groups of neutrophils and how they find these behaviors. So I thought it was really cool, but man, so much work.
0: Yeah, it, it it it's impressive. Like so, I don't know if it's quite ready for prime time. But all right, Brenda, let's get on to your paper um, before we start having to use your dial up modem.
1: Uh, yeah, so I'm moved. my My last paper also has to do with neutrophils a little bit, so and um, platelets. So, also reminds me of some of our guests talking about importance of platelets and neutrophil behavior. So, in this case, uh, I think it was, a, it was a very interesting paper published in Unity from first author Valentina Poli from the lab of Ivan Sononi at Harvard. And it's called inhibition of transcription factor and fat activity Activated platelets enhances their aggregation and exacerbates gram-negative bacterial septicemia. And the first thing that came into my mind is uh, what's the point of a transcription factor in a cell that has no nucleus, like a platelet? Um, so I was I was kind of intrigued at the beginning because it feels like a like a, like an impossible thing. Uh, so I, I looked into this paper. I thought it was really cool. Uh, in this in the study, they look into the, f- the phenomenon of of, of sepsisemia uh, that it's induced by gram-negative bacteria, and uh, basically some of the events that happen when you have bacterial in your in your bloodstream, it's the the induction of of nets of neutrophil extracellular traps from neutrophils of uh, together with activated platelets. You, see, you have also Uh, intravascular coagulation, you have inflammation. And, um, so in this paper, they look into, uh, how N fat expression in platelets affects this, uh, the activation of neutrophils and coagulation and the basically the the septicemia response in in mice. And also they have a little bit of, of human data. So basically, um, they they look into NFAT. As I said, NFAT is a transcription factor, and it's a little bit of contraintuitive to look at it in, in platelets. But NFAT uh, members are expressed in platelets, uh, three of the four NFAT members. And it's activated uh, by um, uh, uh, downstream of phospholipase C and uh, by uh, influx of calcium. And it it's, it binds or it interacts with calcineurin and gets this phosphorylated and that's how it uh, becomes activated and um they see that indeed in the case of platelets upon the activation of platelets they see that there's a time dependent phosphorylation of in this case looking into nfat1 one of the three members of the nfat family are expressed in platelets so they see that nfat does get uh, activated in this in this type of cells and um they also show that in the case if you if you inhibit Nfat activation, and they have a couple of ways of doing this. They either have Nfat uh, knockout mice, and they do in, in vitro experiments. All those have what things very interesting is what they call a vivid permi peptide, which is a peptide of this with this um, with this sequence that can inhibit the interaction between calcineurin and Nfat. And that results in accumulation of uh, phosphorylated NFAT or so non-activated NFAT, and they see that this uh, not uh, this uh, deactivation, this inhibition of NFAT, results in a hyperaggregation of activated platelets, and this is uh, true both for mouse and human platelets. So there's something that NFAT activation is doing to the behavior of these, of these platelets. And uh, in the case of NFAT negative mice or NFAT knockout mice, they also see that their platelets aggregated more efficiently. And uh, this is related to some integrins that are uh, enhancing the, the, the spreading of this, uh, platelets of fibrogen, which is part of their, their, their um, aggregation uh, mechanism. And, and um, they also look into NFAT inhibitors, which are used as immunosuppressants, for example, for transplants. And in uh, to which uh, altered platelet function had been reported before, uh, the examples are cyclosporin A or tacrolimus, and they also drive hyperaggregation uh, of mouse platelets. But this only happens when the platelets become up- activated. Um, and they're also, they also look into some, uh, a couple of, of patients from uh, some syndromes that are characterized by hyporesponsiveness of platelets and they show that and they they, they looked that inhibition of of, of uh, fat activation with uh, um, with for example cyclosporine a increase the aggregation uh, reached by these platelets and they can kind of they didn't try it in vivo but they 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 suggest that this might improve slightly the function of of the platelets in these patients. And uh, what is interesting is that when they have mice uh, that are treated with, in this case, uh, tra- uh, tachrolimus, also an n inhibitor, they see that this leads to increased aggregation of platelets, uh, which reduces, for example, uh, tail bleeding, which is a way of looking to coagulation in mice. But what, it's, what is also interesting is that they have an exacerbated pulmonary thromboembolism, so these this, this, uh, mice have a higher tendency to, to coagulation uh, which will be kind of the other side of the of the coin for for this treatment. And they look a little bit into how what is related, they try to understand how does fat inhibition uh, affect the platelet function, but they don't completely get into a mechanism. Uh, but then they develop uh, and they develop a mouse that, which they call infatuation mouse, which is a transgenic mouse that is expressing this vivid pep that I mentioned uh, a little while ago which uh, prevents N-fat activation, but preventing the binding to calcineurin. To, uh, and they and they uh, have it expressed under the CRE recombinase. And then they cross these mice with P- PF or CRE mice to express this peptide exclusively in platelets. Basically, they see that it's NFAT expression specifically in platelets, which have no nucleus. So it has to be something that's not related to transcriptional function of, of NFAT uh, that is uh, in, increasing the the, the aggregation uh, of these platelets and is kind of influencing their function. And they also uh, have more a tendency to uh, form more complexes with, with neutrophils and induce the production of nets uh, by neutrophils. So and basically, I thought it was very interesting because they study kind of a non-canonical a function of NFAT, which is not related to transcription. Uh, so it was really nice, a really nice paper, I thought.
0: Did they figure out what NFAT was doing that wasn't transcriptionally related?
1: No, they kind of have that as an open end. They do suggest that maybe it's the fact that uh, and dephosphorylated NFAT might be kind of capturing or, or turning off some regulators of platelet of platelet activation, or maybe releasing something that turns off the platelet response. So they do not know exactly how the mechanism works.
0: Hmm. Sounds like that's their next grant. <laughs> yeah, I do think so. Well, we're going to be speaking to Dr. Dr. Mahai Nathia at Radbound University. Nyman, in just a moment, but before we get to that, you do immunotherapy research? Stem Cell Technologies offers products and protocols for immunotherapy research, including T-cell isolation, activation, and expansion reagents. Use Easy-Step T-cell isolation kits to isolate highly purified T-cells in as little as 8 minutes. Follow up with the immunocult reagents designed for human T-cell activation and expansion. Learn more about stem cells, optimized protocols, and reagents for immunotherapy research at stemcell.com/slash-t-cell-therapy.
1: Joining us today is Dr. Mihai Netea. He is professor of experimental medicine at the Radboud University in Nijmegen in the Netherlands, and also professor of immunometabolism at the University in Bonn in Germany. The Netia Lab has made contributions to our understanding of train immunity, which are very valuable. Um, we're very much looking forward to talking about these today. Dr. Netia, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be with you today.
0: All right. So I'll dive right in. Um, reading your papers, it's not often that you get to read some scientist's work and then it becomes a coffee table conversation at dinner. It's not like I can go talk to my parents about a lot of things I read. But your stuff was very interesting at a high level, the fact that there is generational immunological memory transfer that's epigenetic. So could you dive in at a high level and like just jump into what you've found?
1: If I might just say, maybe, Dr. Netea I could start by talking what is, what do I understand as trained immunity?
2: Absolutely. I'll, I'll, I'll try with, with that one first, and then we'll go to the intergenerational transmission of traits. Uh, basically, what we mean by trained immunity is the capacity of innate immune cells to change to adapt to a previous encounter. So, for the last, for more than the last half a century, starting from the 50s and 60s, we started to divide the immune responses in into two. What is happening in the first couple of hours and days of an infection? Um, th- these are processes that are mediated by certain immune cells. Uh, called myeloid cells and, and K cells, which are generally believed to react the same way each time that they encounter a pathogen of microorganism and so on. And They are supposed not to have memory. They they were always doing the same thing. However, when when the infection is longer, cannot be eliminated by this first line of defense, then other smarter cells come into play like lymphocytes, B and T cells, which can, first of all, induce a response in an antigen-specific way, so they respond only towards very specific microorganisms, but then also they can build immunological memory. And we always thought that this immunological memory can be built only by lymphocytes. But in the last couple of years, we discovered that actually also the myeloid cells and K cells, so cells of the innate immune response, what is happening in the first hours after an infection, they can also build a certain type of memory, which is not that specific as that of lymphocytes, but still very relevant for the next time that they will encounter an infection, when they will respond better, basically. So that that memory, this uh, this heterologous form of memory in the innate immune cells, we called it uh, trained immunity. Now, regarding regarding the other the other question is well. Is that relevant only during the lifetime of an individual or can be also transmitted some form of it to to next generations and so on? Well, in the last, let's say, one, two decades, more and more data have become available that indeed transmission of immune traits can be done also across generations. I think that uh, by far, the the most solid uh, the most solid information on that comes from plants. For example, if a plant is um, is infected with a pathogen, with a virus or a fungus, and it is not killed by that pathogen, it will become more resistant. But very interestingly, this resistance can be transmitted through seeds through epigenetic processes for up to four or five generations. So, in in the plants. This process has been demonstrated for quite some time already, actually. Now, people have started to ask themselves whether that could happen also in animals, and again, in animals and especially in in invertebrates, such as uh, as insects, um, uh, uh, worms, and so on. There has been demonstrated very clearly in the last two decades that there are more than 15 groups of animals, if I'm not mistaken, where this happens. And in others, it has not been uh, studied. So basically, for example, an insect, which is infected by a virus, can transmit this resistance to the progeny, so the progeny would also be more resistant to to the virus. And and lately, also, there are more and more uh, studies showing that similar type of processes are probably taking place also in invertebrates. And um, and this is, I think, something very important because in the end, that demonstrates that transmission, inter, inter, intergenerational transmission of traits has an important role in physiology. So um, yeah, I think that is very important as well.
0: So to continue on that, I think if I remember right, in your work, you showed it transmitted to f2 but not past that so you know the parent with the insult passed on some level of protection and even across organisms the one generation and then it persisted to a second but then waned off that to me sounds like there's evolutionary pressure to lose the memory because it expends energy Have you guys looked into that and then what makes this memory fade over time is it just energy expenditure why is it two generations not permanent or not five, or if there's any difference in between species that gives insight into the persistence differences? So, as I mentioned,
2: in, in plants, for example, it's up to five or six generations. So it's absolutely clear that there is a difference between species and different types of organisms. I, I do think that there is indeed um, a pressure in a way um, uh, to, to be flexible to be able to change. Because what it has been good today or tomorrow doesn't mean it will be good in 10 years or 100 years. And for example, trained immunity, the capacity of of responding better to uh, to a reinfection or a re-stimulation is lost not only across generation, but is also lost within an individual. So for example if we induce trained immunity with a certain type of vaccines in in a healthy individuals that doesn't mean that that healthy individuals will retain that increased responsiveness of the immune cells the rest of his life actually we do see that after two or three years that starts to fade and it is lost and it is lost because uh, because this type of uh, this type of memory is induced by different programs at epigenetic and transcriptional levels in the bone marrow progenitors of, of immune cells. And when different type of infections takes place or different type of exposures are encountered by an organism uh, during uh, his or her uh, lifetime, that will change basically these uh, these programs in the bone marrow. So this is a very flexible, very um, uh, it, it's a very plastic process. Is not rigid in the way that, well, let's say that we were infected with uh, microorganism X, and then we will be able to better respond to microorganism X the rest of the life. But that might be not so good when we will encounter organism Y or 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 a different one. So so I think we are meant to be flexible and we are meant to be uh, to be uh, uh, to be plastic in this because on short term, it makes sense actually to have this increased responsiveness, to have a changed program, but on the long term, not necessarily. And there is also the question, if this is good against infections, why didn't evolution take care in the hundreds of millions of years since uh, since we evolved? Then we are always at the very high level of uh, of immune response all the time. We will not have any infections. Everything is fine. Well, there is a trade-off in this, and and evolutionarily speaking, there are two things that that impact the success of a of a species. First of all, not to die uh, before you reproduce, and the second one, the number of children you will have. And for example, in in our case, as vertebrates and mammals, um, the reproduction of uh, the success of the reproduction is crucial because we have very small number of, of, of progeny basically. And for example, um, a woman who has a baby when, when she's pregnant, she needs actually to tolerate a transplant basically because the baby is half coming from the father. So it's basically a transplantate for nine months. And because of that, the immune system has to be uh, tolerant has to be at a lower pitch actually than we would need for example when we are uh, when we are um, um, healthy and we would fight an infection so there is this trade off and it has been shown actually in in earlier studies that that uh, organisms not only humans but uh, but in in other mammals as well that if you have a very strong immune response, you do have a a higher chance of spontaneous uh, abortions. So all the time, there is a trade-off, very strong immune system against the infection, but at the same time, not strong enough to allow the pregnancy to to be successful. And, And during a pregnancy, the immune system of the woman is physiologically depressed a little bit, so, for example, that's why in the clinic we advise women not to eat, not to eat blue cheese, for example, uh, because that is uh, full with fungi, which in a depressed immune response, a physiologically depressed immune response can give much more problems than in uh, in other situations. So, yeah, that is why we need to be flexible and we need to change to be able to change our immune response.
1: Going back a little bit into the features of any trained immunity, um, I am fascinated by the fact that there's certain, for example, VZG vaccination can offer uh, protection against non-diseases that are not related to tuberculosis. And how that also, uh, also starting from epidemiological uh, data, has also sparked an interest in understanding how just training the immune system in general can protect us uh, against a wide range of diseases, and also including COVID-19. So I would like also to hear your, your thoughts on this part of trained immunity
2: so yes it has been shown for a number for a number of uh, vaccines uh, bcg being one of them bacille calmette guerin the vaccine against tuberculosis has been shown to induce um, heterologous protection against mortality in young children so the mortality in in uh, countries with high infectious pressure uh, has been decreased by fifty percent in various studies uh, by BCG vaccination, but it's not the only one. Other other vaccines that can induce these type of effects are the measles-containing vaccines, such as MMR, but also or, oral polio vaccine has been shown, and um, and also probably variola vaccine was doing the same in the years when it was given. Um, so. Yes, that that has been shown, and and it has been shown to decrease the number of uh, of other types of infections. We have done also a number of studies on that and showing this uh, this effect. That being said, we have also to to realize BCG by itself cannot be the golden bullet for everything. So, uh, for example, we have we have tried uh, we have tried to use it also for. Uh, for uh, COVID-19 and there are a number of clinical trials ongoing. Um, Some of them, a couple of them are known now. Uh, Unfortunately, it seems that BCG does not uh, protect against covid itself it does protect against other respiratory tract infections but not about uh, against covid uh, uh, covid 19 on the other hand there is another study uh, published uh, recently as a preprint and hopefully soon it will be published as a peer reviewed publication with a, a phase 3 randomized trial with measles containing vaccines with the mmr in which there was um, if i remember correctly approximately 40 45% uh, protection with uh, with MMR. And there is another very well done, uh, very large study done with the vaccine against shingles, uh, shingrix, for example, which reduced by 20 or 25 percent the hospitalizations uh, with uh, uh, with covid-19 and that was in a very large population in 400,000 people or something like that so there are these non specific effects uh, uh, that has have been seen also with other types of vaccines in covid-19 it seems not with bcg but probably with measles um, and and shingrix so the shingles vaccine and probably there are clinical trials also with the influenza vaccine but what we what we believe it's important to learn from this pandemic, because fortunately now we have good vaccines. So for COVID nineteen, we won't need BCG or MMR because we have better vaccines. We have, we have um, a number of vaccines which work perfectly fine. So we would not need this heterologous protection. But but show but by showing that this is happening also in this pandemic, this this positive effect, uh, we demonstrate that such heterologous vaccines could be used against another type of new pathogen. So for example, if we would have a new pandemic in the future, and we will have a new pandemic in the future, we could immediately try to use and employ, in the very first months into a pandemic, to do a couple of clinical trials to assess which one of these vaccines would work against that new pathogen, so at the moment that we would have that information, we could use it as a bridge vaccination until the specific vaccines are developed. Because the, now we were lucky, actually, to be very honest, uh, that in within one, one and a half years, we had several good vaccines against COVID-19. But there are sometimes pathogens for which is much more difficult to develop a vaccine. We can see what is happening, unfortunately, with HIV. Still after 40 years or so, we still don't have an, uh, a vaccine against uh, HIV, and we might get less lucky next time. So using these approaches to have the possibility to create a breach vaccination until we are able to develop a new vaccine could be very valuable, I think, in the future. And we need to use the the, the next couple of years to uh, uh, to develop this methodology also for the future pandemic.
0: So, I wanted to dive into this with mechanism a little bit. And by the way, I believe there was a paper that actually showed that flu vaccination was affecting COVID or or vice versa. I can't remember now. But yeah, there was, correct. There was yeah. this cross link. Um, it yeah. was pretty recent. But to, to deep dive um, just a little bit, do you think this is because you're developing a level of immune tolerance so that your body doesn't freak out and have a cytokine storm? And so, the more vaccines and exposure you have, kind of the the better muscle the immune system is? Because we all think about, oh, it needs to be trained against a pathogen, which is true. But half of all the pathologies, you know, as a physician that comes from these diseases or more, is an overreaction of the immune system to to the insult. It it, it does a great job killing the the pathogen. It also just takes you out too because it hasn't kind of learned, learned how to calm down a little bit. Do you think that's what's driving it? Or is there another, or is it really a lot of cross-reactivity and stuff or some of both?
2: Well, I think I think you actually explained the precise correct answer in your in your uh, uh, in your question, uh, because there are precisely these two components of the of the protective effects. On the one hand, uh, the cells are able to react uh, better in terms of eliminating the uh, eliminating the organism when when it is encountered, but at the same time, it's learning not to overreact with a systemic inflammatory response. So both these two components are crucial. And we see it, uh, for example, with influenza, but also with BCG vaccination, that indeed both of them decrease the systemic inflammation after they are being given, while improving the responsiveness while we encounter a new pathogen. So these two components are both, uh, both very useful and very important. This is how the immune system actually learns to respond properly to an infection, to be very effective in eliminating the infection, but also tolerizing uh, the products of that infection and not overreact to induce collateral damage.
1: And also, diving deep into this topic, what do we know about the mechanisms by which you can generate this trained immunity? I know that you have some insights on how the these vaccines can affect the metabolism of tr- monocytes and train them. maybe would you like to give a quick um, view of what do we understand at this level?
2: Yes, so there are there are several levels at which we can understand that. So at the molecular level in each cell, what is happening basically is an interaction between immune signaling which is induced inside the cell upon recognition of the pathogen. So the pathogen is recognized through specific receptors that induces certain immunological uh, signals in the cells. And those signals go at the level of the uh, the nucleus and at the level of uh, um, uh, metabolic changes in the cell. So it changes basically the metabolism of the cell It's inducing certain pathways, such as glycolysis. is changing other pathways, such as uh, Krebs cycle. And that results in a different mixture, in a different soup of metabolites in the cells. And those, those metabolites are at the same time those which influence thereafter epigenetic enzymes in the nucleus to change the chromatin architecture. And then there is this interaction between immune signals, Changed metabolite concentrations in the cells and modified epigenetic enzymes, which change the architecture of the of the chromatin, which makes it more appropriate for gene transcription to respond easier to stimuli when, when encounters infections and so on. So this is one level at the at the molecular level. At the same time, there is also the cellular level where, where this happens, and this can happen at cellular level at at periphery, in the monocytes and macrophages in periphery, but very important also, this happens also at the level of the bone marrow progenitors of these cells. So, we encounter these changes that are induced by by the vaccines also at the level of the uh, bone marrow, where the uh, myeloid cell progenitors are changed by these uh, signals, so they will produce thereafter daughter cells, which are better in eliminating pathogens.
0: So we're running out of time to deep dive science here. So I guess the, the question I have next to kind of go to is for the audience listening, it's mostly grad students, postdocs, faculty, maybe a few undergrads here and there. Is there. Are there openings in your lab or other areas uh, for people interested in this type of work? And if so, where should they go to learn more or uh, see about getting involved?
2: Well, I think that for the people interested, there are there are a lot of groups now around the world with, uh, who work on these. Uh, the field is basically uh, expanding very, very quickly. Uh, we have uh, constantly new, new positions, of course, also because of uh, uh, because of the interest in in the work that is expanding. There are also several colleagues of us uh, that uh, that that uh, are working. Um, there will be also, for those interested, uh, a Keystone Conference on innate immune memory slash uh, uh, trained immunity next year in Banff in Canada in March. So um, for those who are really interested in the field, that is the place to be, basically, because all the, all the major groups involved in, in, in the field will be there, and I think it will be very exciting uh, uh, exciting meeting. And, um, yeah, I, th- I think there will be a lot of uh, possibilities to work in, in, in this in the coming years.
1: Great. Then the, the field looks very promising and we're excited to hear more uh, about future research. Uh, I think that we are, uh, yeah, reaching the end of our conversation here. Um, but we like to ask at the end uh, kind of a question more, a little more personal to get to know our, our guests. And so I guess that one of the questions I have for you is what is a hobby you would have liked to pursue but never had the time for
2: uh, well as well a hobby that I would like to to pursue I mean I I have been always passionate by history for example and I also I always dream let's say to to join at a certain moment an archaeological uh, uh, Side to well to stay for a couple of weeks, for example, to discover a new civilization in the Middle East, for example, or what, wherever exciting things are happening, and that that is something that I would have liked to do, uh, but of course that there was stuff uh, uh, with with all the other things.
1: Yeah, that sounds very exciting. You know, I imagine like beginning of the century English explorers, you know, just going to middle of I, don't know, I know Egypt to find some random tomb.
2: Yes,
0: exactly. I'm uh, <laughs> uh, bringing been the form. things
1: back in big craters full of of hay and just some vases or something.
0: Now they're using sonar to find all of this uh, stuff underground that no one ever realized was there, which is pretty fascinating. So maybe you can still do that as a second career.
2: Well, I'm I am involved actually. I'm involved with colleagues. I'm I'm from Romania originally myself, so I I know a lot of historians from Romania, and I am a little bit involved in some some work on ancient DNA in uh, in uh, from Neolithic and Bronze Age in Romania. So it's still I'm still trying to pursue some of these uh,
0: things.
1: That's exciting.
0: My wife's family is from the border of Romania and Hungary, the part that kept going back and forth. Um, ah. Somewhere that like, we looked at visiting, but you'd have to like fly in and then take a train and then take a bus to like, like the most remote place in Rome. <laughs> I'm like, I, I have to look up the name of it, but it, it's quite like in the corner. Uh, but okay. that's where her family was from before they ended up coming here after the war.
1: Well, there is your Romanian connection, Jason. Anyway, it's been great uh, talking to you. Thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. And we wish you a lot of success with your upcoming research. And we wish you a great day.
2: Thank you very much. Thank you very much for the invitation. It was a pleasure. Thank you.
0: That brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.immunologypodcast.com to get the show notes including an episode summary and links to all of the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at, at @immunopodcast or via email at info@immunologypodcast.com at with feedback or suggest guests. See you next time.